Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Hi, Reimagining Love listeners. I have a special announcement. The brand new Reimagining Love Workbook, Volume 1, is now on sale on my website. You know, when I set out to create this podcast, I knew that I wanted the lessons and the insights from the episodes to feel tangible and immediately applicable to you and your relationships. As a couples therapist, I've seen time and time again that improving your relationships and your relationship with yourself takes effort and intention and time. We need strategies, we need practices that we can play with, as well as structured spaces to reflect. And sometimes the best way to do this is to put pen to paper, to see what's going on inside of our minds and inside of our hearts. So I decided that I would create companion worksheets for all of the solo deep dive episodes of Reimagining Love. These worksheets contain tables to fill out, relational self-awareness questions to answer, and reflection exercises, all tied to the topic of the episode. And these worksheets have been available to listeners through my newsletter as the corresponding episodes have aired. And now I've updated all of them and we've compiled them into this downloadable, easy to use workbook so that you can conveniently access them all in one place. And at the end of the workbook, you're going to find a glossary of the therapeutic terms that I frequently use, as well as a list of all the podcast episodes thus far organized by topic in case you're seeking support in a particular area at a particular moment. So if you're ready to dive deeper into your relational self-awareness work, click the link in the show notes or head to dralexandrasolomoncom slash RL Workbook to purchase this amazing bundle of resources, which you can use individually or with your partner. Hi there, and welcome back to Reimagining Love. 
As you surely have noticed, work-life balance is such a hot topic these days, especially as it pertains to working parents and family life. I think we can certainly partially attribute this to the complete upheaval of work and family life that the pandemic forced upon us. So many couples and families had to reimagine the way they were balancing time, caring for their children, and showing up for their careers. So an important conversation is happening, but many parents still feel overwhelmed and powerless. And that is where my guest for today's episode and her amazing new book come in. Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn is a clinical psychologist specializing in treating relationships. She's a co-host for the Psychologist Off the Clock podcast, an assistant professor at Brown University, and a parent of three. Her writing about working parenthood has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and Greater Good Sciences Center, among others. And her new book is Work, Parent, Thrive, 12 Science-Backed Strategies to Ditch Guilt, Manage Overwhelm, and Grow Connection When Everything Feels Like Too Much. Yael and I had a wide-spanning conversation about the central themes of her book, And I'll preview for you that one of the recommendations she makes is that parents establish values for themselves that can guide their choices and support them when things feel unmanageable. We also answer a wonderful listener question together about the types of conversations that one might have with a partner about parenting and about values in advance of starting a family. I'm really grateful for Yael's compassion and her clarity around these topics. And I hope that you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Dr. Yael. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm so glad to be speaking with you, Dr. Solomon, and I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Thank you for having me on. Well, I'm delighted to have you on. I want to start by telling you that back in December, I did an episode of Reimagining Love that was called, Is Work Stress Taking a Toll on Your Relationship? And it ended up being one of our most downloaded and listened to episodes. So I'm really glad to have an expert in the house so that we can really break down this topic of working parenthood. I know that our audience is going to love hearing from you and learning from your wisdom. So thank you. Yeah, it's such an important topic, you know, how work impacts relationships for sure. Mm-hmm. But before we dive in, I want to ask you the relational self-awareness question that I ask to all of our guests. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. <laughs> all right. Dr. Yael, can you tell us please about a growing edge that you're currently working on in one of your important relationships and what it's been teaching you lately? So this is not very novel, but I am working on being a better listener, which is an ironic thing to work on because I'm a professional (laughs) therapist. In other words, kind of a professional listener, but listening in my personal relationships is hard, right? It's hard for me to turn fully on as listener with my partner and sometimes even with my kids because I get distracted and I'm busy with so many things and my to-do list, you know, captures my attention But what I know about relationships is how important it is to really fully tune in when somebody who loves you is and who you love is speaking to be able to tune in sort of heart, body, and soul to what it is that they're saying. And because life has gotten so busy with my book, I have found myself being more distracted. So that is something that I'm actively working on. How, like, what are, what are, do you have any tips or tricks? Because even, even the amateur <laughs> listeners among us struggle with it, but yeah, even us. So if 
yeah, I think we all struggle with listening. So what are some, <laughs> do you have any like tips or reminders that you, or mantras that you give to yourself that you have found helpful? Yeah. Well, so I think the biggest thing for me is I think of it almost like a meditation practice. It's like just being more deliberate about noticing where my attention is when I'm connecting with people I love. Just a more general awareness of where my attention is, is is something that I try to check in on throughout the day is kind of like a habit, like, oh, where's my attention now? Where's my attention now? The other thing is I try to sort of at like specific times in the day. So for example, right after I've picked my children up or right after my partner gets home from his job to use that transition point as an opportunity to fully step into whatever the, you know, partner or parent role and to use that as like a wake-up call. Like now it's time to tune in and really listen, ask the questions and pay attention to the answer. So to do those check-ins throughout the day, but at the transition points in my day, to use that as an opportunity to really commit to the role and to commit to the listening in that role. Super practical, super specific and really easy to miss, right? I know all the moments where I haven't done that, where I, when my kids were younger, I would pick them up from school, especially when I was writing my first book, because it's so immersive. So I had been immersed in my own thoughts for so long. And I would pick them up from school and realize like halfway home, oh my God, I haven't even heard what they've said because I'm still inside of my book. So I love that you are letting us know it's pretty simple, right? Because it's just an intentional shift of attention. Absolutely. And I am totally the same, like, you know, book writing or other immersive work tasks are really hard to step out of. And and the awareness of how hard it is can help you to be more deliberate about doing that transition. The other thing I'll just share, and this is maybe a funny thing to do, but I give my kids full permission to catch me when I'm not paying attention. And I let them know, like, I'm really, you know, totally consumed by work right now. And I want to be present when I'm around you. So if you feel like I'm not paying good attention, just let me know. And it's not your responsibility. It's mine. But if you notice it, because I somehow missed my own cue, just let me know and I'll make a promise to try my best to come back into the moment. And so they're really cute. Like we do it around my technology. Like I say, I don't really want to be on my phone when I'm around you guys, especially right when you come home. So if you notice me with my phone in my hands, feel free to call me out. Like mom's, you know, not following her own rules and they delight in it. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure they get to bust mom. I love that. Totally. I love that modeling also for the fact that your relationship with your kids is a relationship. It goes both directions. So you are, you can be both the authority figure and the safe place for them to land and somebody who's available for them to speak up to and, and, and call in, as we say, not call out, but call in. (laughs) Absolutely. And I I do think that as parents, we need to begin to really see our relationships as bi-directional and, you know, we are the parents, we're not just the friends. So it's not like totally even in terms of a hierarchy, but our kids can teach us too. And and their feedback matters, even if we maintain that sort of um, authority as parents, in, which is also important. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, transitioning us to our topic of the day, which is working parenthood. So keeping these little people in mind, let's talk about what, what it means to be a working parent. And you have written this book that is so thoughtful. It's so thorough. It's so practical. There's so much good wisdom in it that I'm really excited to tease apart with you. But I thought I would start by, I think there's some like really important context to put right up top of this conversation. A lot of it is 
what you name right in the opening of your book. So can I, I want to go through these six kind of like framing elements for our listener. I want to say up top that we're not elevating parenthood above those who do not become or cannot become parents. That's the first one. The second one is we're not elevating working parenthood above stay at home parenthood. That's what's the second one. The third one I was thinking about is that working parenthood with a partner is not the same as working parenthood as a single parent. And then that working at a job that feels like a calling is not the same as working at a job that is purely there to pay the bills. And that race and gender and sexuality shape the experience of both parenthood and work. And that the strategies that you are talking about, that, that you are really inviting us into, are these psychological strategies. And they exist right alongside the need for those bigger systemic shifts about policy and pay equity and all of that. So that's kind of like the big frame here, right? Tell me what which of those stand out to you? Which of those do you want to kind of pick up on? I know they're going to be with us throughout the conversation, but I wanted to put them out there up top because I know this is a tender, you know, it's a tender topic for people to think about who they are as working parents and it can kind of, you know, create some some vulnerability. Absolutely. And I think you're pointing out one of the, I mean, in a sense, it's like the fatal flaw of the book because I'm talking about the psychology of working parenthood. And yet we work and parent in a larger social context in a larger system that has certain inequities. And so we can't just talk about the psychology without talking about the context within which we live. And the other part too, is that, um, as you're saying, if we're talking about some of the gifts of working parenthood, it can almost sound like we're saying that's, you know, the only way to get these particular gifts. And I do talk about certain gifts of working parenthood that I think are really valuable. But what I'm pretty careful to say, too, is that many of these gifts can be accessed in other ways. It's just that if you are somebody who is inhabiting multiple demanding roles, there are certain ways that you can access greater happiness or stress management or creativity that are unique to being, you know, tugged between roles in particular ways. Um, That doesn't mean that you can't access it if you're inhabiting different kinds of roles or fewer roles or more roles. It's just that we can use social science in this particular framing if you're inhabiting both work and parenthood to access gifts in particular ways. So I think that I love the framing that you're giving because it, it really does suggest that everything that we talk about is in context and that it's not like this is the one right way to do anything. There's lots of right ways to do all of our roles and there's lots of really valuable ways to use social science and clinical psychology to do them more skillfully and more happily too. Yeah. I think it's my favorite part of your book is that you did the courage, you took the courageous path of saying, yes, there are massive, especially here in the U S there are massive systemic issues. And we are going to also tighten up the lens and talk about the role of psychology and what you as an individual can do within your life today, as you say it, while we wait for the larger changes to happen. We don't have to just kind of twiddle our thumbs and be miserable. There are things that we can do in our lives today, even as we know darn well that bigger change has to happen. There's so much, you're calling it a fatal flaw. I think it's like the tremendous, I think it's like the secret sauce of this book (laughs) is if you're just courageous and letting both those things be true. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. 
Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. So you've been working as an academic and a clinician. Why this book? Why did you decide to focus on this topic? Because I became a working parent and realized that the what I anticipated to be true that it would be hard was like even more hard than I ever anticipated. So I was actually in a really privileged position when I became a working parent. I had a job that I loved in academia. I have a supportive partner. I had a healthy pregnancy and I was really excited and fell in love immediately with my baby. So like all good things. And then when I went back to work, it was this shock to the system. I would be crying on my commute into work and feeling super depressed all day while I was working on my academic uh, writing, thinking that my son was being taken care of by virtual strangers. And then I'd be home at night with my son and feeling so ashamed of myself for not doing work because all my colleagues were going to lap me. And I, it became this sort of like battle with myself, like, what am I doing? And why am I so unhappy when I have all the things that I'm, that I wanted, that I worked so hard to get to. And I'm in such a privileged position. And so I started reading everything that I could get my hands on because that's what nerdy people like me do. And most of what I found in the bookstore and the libraries was, you know, the systems aren't supporting us or you need to be more efficient with your time. And for me, it didn't really help me to figure out like, what am I going to do with this unhappiness that I'm feeling saddled with? And so from there, I started looking at the academic science, at the studies that had been done on working parenthood. And what I found there was kind of magical. It was like this concept that I'd never heard of before called work family enrichment. And immediately I was like, wait, I want to know what that is. And I want more of that, (laughs) not the conflict side, but the enrichment side. And basically what work family enrichment is, is this construct that basically says that our roles help each other out in particular ways. And so I started really diving into the academic literature about creativity and rest and happiness and stress. And I found all these really neat ways that tension between demanding roles can actually serve us well and serve the roles well. And so that was sort of the birth of this book that I really wanted to write something that was optimistic, that didn't require us to wait until the system is better, but instead energized us so that we can push harder for a better system and all the while enjoy what we're doing a little bit more, find a little bit more skill, a little bit more happiness, a little bit more hope as we're waiting and pushing for the systems around us to catch up for what we really do deserve in terms of support. Absolutely. Absolutely. The way that you're framing these these tools that we're going to bring to our work-life enrichment, our work-life synergy, are framed in the, the therapy approach that you practice, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. Can you tell us a little bit more about that approach to therapy and what it is that you love about it? Oh, gosh. I love acceptance and commitment therapy. I, I geek <laughs> out about it. So it's a treatment. It's an evidence-backed treatment that 
is inspired by a lot of Eastern philosophy. So that's sort of the acceptance piece of it, um, which I think is very beautiful. So there's components of mindfulness and acceptance and recognition of our thought patterns and the recognition of how natural they are. And then there's these more change-oriented processes that have to do with learning how to recognize and step back from our thoughts, learning how to clarify our values and what we want to stand for, and learning to connect to what we call committed action, to practices and habits that are more in line with our values, even when we're feeling uncomfortable thoughts or having uncomfortable feelings or our minds are generating stories that feel um, really distressing. So it's this combination of acceptance components and change components. And the part that I probably like the most is this idea of really getting clear on what we want to stand for moment to moment. And all of these core processes also converge on this underlying theme of something that psychologists call psychological flexibility. So it's the ability to persist, to keep going, or to desist, to stop doing a behavior in whatever way is consistent with our values and also what's happening inside of us and outside of us. So it's sort of, it, it sort of encompasses like, do we decide to grit or do we decide to quit based on what we want to stand for and based on what's going on and whatever role that we're participating in. And I think it's such a great model for working parenthood because we're often on the hook for, you know, changing what's the priority and changing where our focus is and changing how we do whatever it is that we're doing, either because we're changing roles or because our children are entering new developmental phases or because our work demands something new of us. And so being able to be clear on what you want to stand for, even as the scenery around you is kind of ever evolving, is a really important thing to be able to do. I love that reminder that the answer isn't grit or grit or quit. Grit or quit. Yeah. Right. There's, there's not one or the other. It was making, as I was reading your book, I was thinking about this memory, this like one of these like alarm clock wake up moments that I had when our daughter, our youngest was, maybe she was two and I was getting ready to leave the house for a day of clinical work and I was putting on my makeup and she was in the bathroom with me and I was so irritated with her. You know, I was wanting her to stop whatever, talking or asking me to look at what she was looking at. And I was so irritated with her in the, in the, the, the light bulb or the alarm clock moment for me was like, I can't keep doing this. Like, this is not who I want to be as a mom. And now this was privilege, right? I had the privilege to be able to pivot, but it was in that moment that I knew I had to pause my clinical work, you know, at least for a time. And, and that is, so I say that with all the, all the awareness that that was a privileged choice to make, but it was one of those moments where I wasn't, I wasn't showing up in a repeated ongoing way as the, as the mom I really wanted to be. And so that was, that was my call to action. Do you find that that's in your conversations about this? Do you find that it, it tends to be a moment like that, a growing awareness when there needs to be some kind of a pivot? What do you think? Yeah, I think there are these light bulb moments that each of us have. And sometimes it's more of a slower evolution. For me, it was probably a combination <laughs> that I ended up pulling a little bit back from the more academic side of my work because I realized that it was quite inflexible and didn't allow me. But same as you, I had a lot of privilege in that. But I, what I will also say is, and I talk about this in my book, that whether we adopt a change approach or an acceptance approach has a lot to do with our circumstances, but neither is bad. Like if you didn't have the capacity to pause in your clinical work or I didn't have the capacity to pause and to draw back a bit in my academic endeavors, that we probably could have made a choice to accept certain parts and change other parts that were available to us. And so I think it's that combination of acceptance and change and figuring out 
where's the wiggle room? What can I change? And then what do I need to learn how to tolerate from a more value-oriented perspective? And one of the books that I cite often is called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And he talks about how we always have an opportunity for change even if it's just change in our attitude. And he wrote about his experience in the concentration camps. You know, there wasn't a lot of opportunity to, you know, make agentic decisions. Like, you know, he was going to be murdered if he chose not to do what the SS guards told him to do. But he could choose his attitude and he could choose to make meaning in the small moments of connection with his fellow inmates. That does not mean that being in a concentration camp is okay. But what it does mean is, We each have the capacity to find the wiggle room for change and ways to accept to make meaning of what is really painful to bear. Yeah, that idea of where is the wiggle room? Like, what is the little difference that can make a difference? You mentioned a couple of times now the idea of values. And in fact, when you go through, so the the heart of your book is moving through these 12 strategies that you've got organized as strategies uh, from the head, from the feet, and from the heart. That's how your book is organized. But your very first strategy right out the gate is about figuring out how we can take a values-based approach. And you ask us to sit with the question, what kind of a working parent would I like to stand for through the messy and sometimes painful parts of working family life? How does someone start the work of beginning to identify their values? Yeah. So if it's okay, I'll just first kind of take a step back and define what values even are. And one of the ways that I like to define it is sort of how they're different than goals. So if you think about a journey, like going to the top of a mountain, the goal would be to get to the top of the mountain. And values are the description, a quality of action. So it's how you take the journey. So we don't always have full control over whether or not we get to the top of the mountain because a blizzard could come up or we could twist our ankles, but we have more control over how we take the journey step by step, moment to moment. And values describe how we're taking the journey. So it would be For example, if I was going up the mountain, I might decide that I want to take it mindfully and slowly and really be aware of my surroundings. Or I might want to get a good workout and really push myself up the mountain. If I'm with a friend, I could decide to be quiet and feel that connection in silence. Or we could chat and catch up. And so values would be the description of how I'm taking the journey. And and I might switch the value depending on what's going on around us. Again, if, you know, weather comes up or if we run out of water, we might decide to switch our value from getting a workout to going back down and getting hydration and doing self-care. So values, again, describe a quality of action. And we can think about that in the context of working parenthood in terms of exactly as you frame the question, what is it that we want to stand for? And one of my favorite ways to clarify values is to do this forward-looking exercise where you travel forward 30 years and imagine your older self looking back on your current self And ask yourself, what ways of being would make you most proud? You know, what is it that you think you would most want to stand for during this difficult patch of life or during this exciting patch of life? It doesn't have to be difficult. And it might be, for example, as you were giving the anecdote of recognizing that you weren't able to be very present when you were doing so much clinical work, it might be that I want to be more present. And say you glean that you wanted to be more present, but you realize that, you know, I can't financially afford to draw back on my clinical hours, then it might be a question of, okay, then how is it that I could be more present, maybe even in smaller chunks of time that I do have available without working less? So, 
you know, that question of values doesn't have to be enacted in a particular way. So if you do decide, you know, I want to have more energy, but I can't work less, then the question might really be, then what else can I cut back on? Or can I find pockets of the day where I do have more energy and dedicate it in a more deliberate way to the people who are getting shortchanged right now? So those kinds of questions are clarifying. And depending on how your life looks, you can sort of actively look for that wiggle room and then choose a committed action wherever that wiggle room is. Or it might be, you know, nothing can change, but my attitude can change. And so I can find a way to show up in a more um, joyous way, even if I'm not feeling particularly joyous. And, And that's sort of one of the really interesting things about acceptance and commitment therapy is that we're very careful to say our values and how we show up don't need to match our emotions or even our thoughts. And that's a pretty empowering thing because you can decide to show up, for example, if you're really angry with your partner, you can still decide to show up in a way that is respectful. That doesn't mean that you don't feel angry, but the behaviors that you choose, if you were to follow this path, would line up with your values, not with your emotions. It's not easy, but it's a pretty empowering thing. Well, that is a huge, there's a lot of talk right now about self-abandonment, you know, that if I am respectful to my partner while I feel angry with them, I'm abandoning myself. And you're saying, actually, there's something bigger than all of that, which is your value. It's about the, the really important relationship that you have with yourself and the kind of person that you want to be. And so you can show up as a respectful person, even as you have difficult emotions. It really, it's, it's empowering and it's challenging because it really like, Challenges us to let go of the idea that we are victims, you know, of our circumstances. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Well said. Yeah, but I think you're raising such an important point that it can easily be misconstrued as self-abandonment. Like, do what other people want you to do, not what you feel, which isn't what values are. Values are what you want to stand for. And if you want to stand for somebody who really expresses your anger, then I think that that is really important because sometimes that's exactly what needs to be done because anger helps us to right wrongs, to... Um, counteract injustice. And sometimes we really do need to act on anger. So it isn't like me suggesting that somebody not act angry, but rather it's clarifying for yourself what's important for you to stand for in this particular role or in this particular moment. Yep. Yep. Will you talk to us a little bit about the third strategy you talk us through, which is about unhooking from unhelpful labels. What's an example of an unhelpful label that a lot of us working parents get stuck in? And what does unhooking from that label look like? Some of the labels that I think are quite unhelpful are this is impossible. This is intolerable. Those are kind of probably the two that I find most unhelpful. And the reason that I find them unhelpful is that I think they line up with a fixed mindset. So I talk a lot about fixed versus growth mindset in the book. And most people are familiar with this in the context of student learning. So fixed mindset would be somebody who believes, for example, that they're not good at math. And so they think there's no point in trying because that's just not what I'm good at. Whereas somebody with a growth mindset might say, I'm not good at math yet, but if I work at it, I can get better. When we have these black and white rigid labels, like this is impossible, this is undoable, this is uh, unworkable or intolerable, it causes us to think there's no point in trying. And what we know from mindset research is that once we close off the possibility of anything good happening, we almost ensure that that is going to be the case. Whereas when we say, you know, this is difficult but we can probably find some way to sort of move the dial, to make progress, to learn something valuable. 
then we're much more likely to be able to do exactly that. And so what I really encourage people to do is to notice those thoughts that cause them to drop into that fixed mindset, that mindset of there's no point in even trying because there is value in trying. And what we know, again, from the literature on work family enrichment is that there's lots of opportunities to do what feels really impossible sometimes and to, to do it. And it proves that it's not impossible. It does not mean it's easy. It does not mean it's fair, but it does mean that we can use that growth mindset to help ourselves bear it. And to, again, to fight for more justice and, and humane treatment in our, in the world at large. And so the process of unhooking is noticing those terms and, and recognizing that that's uh, words that our mind generates that we get really attached to. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot in the realm of couples about, you know, being careful about like the always and never kind of binary descriptions of our partner's behavior. You are reminding us to make sure that we are looking for those kind of binary all or nothing labels that we put on our own circumstances. And that's to benefit ourselves because we disempower ourselves from looking at, you know, the, even the small tweaks we can make, but also in the bigger picture. Cause you're saying if our story is this is impossible, then we can, we also can't advocate for other people. We can't advocate for different policies. So that's really powerful. It's a powerful idea of noticing when we stick a really holistic label on a situation that prevents us from seeing and looking for what you keep calling the wiggle room, the little little tweaks that we could be making. So good. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then you move into from the feet, like much more these kind of strategic focused steps and There's a chapter about practical wisdom, different kinds of practical wisdom, these very sort of simple but easy to miss frameworks. And one of them is about reading the room. Can you talk to us about what it means for a working parent to read the room? What does that mean? So reading the room is sort of figuring out, you know, who it is that you're working with and what is the role that you're embodying. Um, (laughs) And I think the most classic examples of a working parent is, you know, we interact differently with our colleagues than we do with our kids, as we should, right? With colleagues, we might be more business-like and forward-looking. With our kids, it is often more helpful to be present-oriented and patient, right? Not to be sort of moving forward uh, hard-throttled on whatever task it is that we're working on. And so being aware of what sort of the role that we're inhabiting, uh, what the expectations are, and what the most appropriate way to be orienting is really important. And that has a lot to do with our emotional intelligence, our ability to kind of gauge like who is it that we're interacting with and what's going to be the most effective way to communicate and what's going to be the guiding values that would be most useful to align with in that particular role. And what that requires, and this is maybe what you're pointing to, is it requires a lot of movement in between. So when you move from your work role to your parenting role, there's a huge transition that happens there, right? Because you're uh, reading the room and recognizing that, okay, now I need to, um, you know, soften my tone and be uh, more of a listener, you know, if you're moving from work to to parenting or if you're m- working from parenting to work, now I need to be more task-oriented and forward-looking and detail-oriented. So the ability to read the room cues us to make those transitions. And the more that we practice making those transitions, the more facile we get in making them. Hmm. It's one of those hidden benefits of being a working parent, right? Is because in order to inhabit both these roles, we need to switch our hats. We need to switch which part of ourself is in the foreground. It's like a basically a a years long training program in psychological flexibility then. 
Exactly. Exactly. And what I think is really heartening about the whole thing is that psychological flexibility is so important for our mental health and well-being in general. And Working Parenthood gives us so many opportunities to build that muscle. <laughs> so thanks, Working Parenthood, for all those opportunities. But but it is really true. And the other thing that I'll say is I really love the studies on lifetime bilinguals because it shows that so for individuals who are raised speaking two languages, it's much less effortful for them to switch from English to Spanish or from Hebrew to English than it is for somebody who learns the language later in life or or who isn't as fluent in the two languages. And to me, what that suggests is that the more practice that we get, the less taxing those role transitions are. And so have compassion because the role transitions do take energy. They, they do take a toll, but also maintain some optimism because the more that you do it, the easier it becomes. Mm -hmm. And if you forget, your kids will remind you. I was just thinking about how yeah. years ago <laughs> totally. I was, I had a, my, I had written an article for O Magazine and it was like, for me, that was like one of my bucket list things, right? Like just stick a fork in me. I'm done. I'm in O Magazine. And my daughter, our daughter was making a little after school. She's making a little sandwich for herself after school. And um, so she must have been, I don't know, 10. And so I'm telling her about, you know, following your dreams and, you know, don't underestimate yourself and anything is possible. She goes, mom, I followed my dreams and I made this sandwich, which is about to make all my dreams come true. <laughs> that is so cute. Oh my gosh. I love that. And what a great example of your work role feeding your parenting role in this beautiful <laughs> way. I love it. And keeping it right. And like keeping perspective on all of it, right? The things that I love that sometimes our kids will get, will understand our career victories or our high points. And sometimes our kids don't even care. And that also keeps it in perspective, right? Oh, yeah. There's nothing like a kid to help keep perspective about you. <laughs> Your stuff is much less important than you think. Your kid uh -huh. will remind you that. <laughs> right. Um, Okay, so I want to move on to talking about turning constraints into creativity, like how having constraints, the, the, the inevitable constraints of working parenthood can actually, you argue, spark creativity, right? Having role incompatibilities, having forced time away from roles can help us be more creative. That seems paradoxical. Can you help us understand that? Yeah, I think this book is full of counterintuitive findings, and this is one of my <laughs> favorites. And I tell the story of this neuroscientist who is actually a friend of mine that I grew up with, who was always the hardest working human I've ever encountered. Like even in high school, she would pull all-nighters. And so it was no surprise that when she was in college, she was part of this research team that found this new kind of eye receptor that detected circadian rhythms. She was like 19 at the time and getting published in Nature. And got a faculty position at one of the most prestigious universities, you know, working weekends, nights, but that was just how she did it. And she was very, very creative. She's actually an artist in her background, but then she became a parent and she was kind of, she fell apart a little bit. She, she described to me, I had a bit of an identity crisis where everything kind of came crashing to the ground because the way that she understood who she was as a worker and as a creative individual couldn't be that way anymore if she was going to participate in a meaningful way as she wanted to in parenting. And so she had to really rework her relationship with her creativity. And what she found, and this is what the science really highlights, is that 
forced breaks when we're working on a hard driving problem are actually quite beneficial. And one of the examples is the Eureka effect. So we all, many of us are familiar with the Archimedes principle, like he was in the bathtub when he recognized the principle of buoyancy. He wasn't working, but it was sort of in the back of his mind. And most of us have had something similar. It's like you have a a fight with your partner and two hours later when you're in the shower, you think of the perfect comeback. Oh, why didn't I think of it at the time? Well, the reason is because when we step away from conscious focus on a problem, that's when these really creative processes occur in our subconscious mind, in our default mode network. And this is a part of our brain that only turns on when our mind is not actively focused. And so being pressed to step away from a difficult problem is an opportunity to engage those creative processes, the creative ways that our brains can think outside of conscious awareness to great benefit. And there's really interesting tools that we can use that really capitalize and optimize those processes. So for example, some research shows that if you switch the kind of task that you're working on when you step away, so in these studies, you start with a verbal task and you go to a spatial task. And then when you return to the verbal task, you have greater creativity then compared to if you went from a verbal task to um, to mind-watering during a different verbal task and came back to the primary verbal task. So doing different kinds of activities when you step away from the primary problem that you've been working on is really good. And that's why I think working parenthood offers this really cool opportunity because if you're at work and then you have to go parent, it's a really different kind of activity that you're doing. And that is exactly when you can get very creative about your work task. And this is my friend, the neuroscientist, finds this all the time that when she's, you know, needs to go pick her kids up from work and then in the evening she's playing with them, that's when the creative realization will hit her. She's like, you know, playing on the floor with them and she'll have this insight. And so that's, you know, one of the ways that we can activate creative uh, thinking when we have multiple demanding roles. The other thing that I think is quite useful to think about is using our incompatible roles to get fresh perspective. There's this sort of um, Proustian quote, the voyage of discovery lies not in finding new landscapes, but in having new eyes. And so using time with our kids to get a fresh perspective or time at work to get a fresh perspective on parenting dilemmas can be incredibly valuable. And so it's counterintuitive because we think, oh, if I just work harder and don't give up, then I'll come up with a creative idea. That is one pathway, but another pathway is to actively and very deliberately and fully step away. So cool. I love psychology. I love the bridges you're making between psychological truths and how we put them into action. Okay. I want to ask you one to talk about one more of your strategies, and then I want to move on to our listener question. So I love this one also. You, you encourage us to remember to subtract and you would like us to generate a stop doing list that goes right alongside our to do list. So tell us what a stop doing list is and like, what do you, what's on your, what's on your stop doing list? Oh gosh, so many things. <laughs> well, so first I'll just start with the science of subtraction is very cool. And the other thing I'll just mention is that the chapter on subtraction was not originally a part of this book, but then I encountered one of the researchers whose work I talk about in my book. His name is Lydie Klotz and he has his own terrific book called Subtract. And Once I got to know the science, I was like, I need to put this in. Because what the science around (laughs) me shows is that we as humans, our brains are wired for acquiring. We're really good when we are confronted with a problem with thinking of additive solutions. Like, 
oh, my closet is really full. I'll get a new container, right? Or my schedule is really Mm -hmm. full. I'll hire a driver. Like we just automatically go to what, what should we do more of so that we can solve the problem? And what we do very poorly is think about what we can take off our plates, what we can remove from our overly stuffed closets and schedules. And that realization I think is quite helpful because it basically suggests that we need to be more deliberate about thinking about uh, removing things. And I'll add one more thing, which is that the research shows that when we're overwhelmed, we're even more likely to overlook subtraction as an option to dealing with whatever the problem is that's in front of us. And so I always think about this as like the target effect. Like when I'm rushing through the aisles of Target is always when I end up with all this stuff that I do not need. And now I have to figure out a place for it. Or now I have to take an extra trip to Target to return it all. And recognizing that impulse, that tendency, that very human tendency helps us to be more deliberate. And so the stop doing list is something that Lighty Klotz talks about in his book. And I think it's really terrific. And what I like adding to it is to clarify your values and to really think about, for example, if you look at the your week's calendar, to think about the various activities and how well they line up with what's most important to you and what you want to stand for as a parent and what you want to stand for as a worker. And if there are items on there that are not in line with your value, put them on the stop doing list and try to figure out either how to cross them off entirely or how to limit the amount of time that they take in your week. And in terms of things that I want to stop doing or do less of, it's mindless scrolling, right? When I'm really tired, I find myself doing a lot of mindless scrolling or checking email, which seems not mindless, but like I check it way too much. But it's one of those things that I do when I don't have any energy to do something productive. But what would be more useful is to sit quietly and just be and not sort of numb Mm -hmm. out in front of, you know, a screen. Yeah. Okay. Can we do this listener question, please, before I let you go? Yes, sure. Okay. So we got a question in from Chantal, who who is writing in from Vancouver. And what she's saying is she's asking us, what are the having slash raising children topics that should be discussed prior to marriage beyond the normal how many and when? Are there areas you typically see couples run into as potential deal breakers or difficult to reconcile that could have led to a different decision to pursue family together in the first place? And how do you recommend balancing these topics with the inevitable tons of considerations and situations that come along with having children? There's no way to plan for all of it. And she says, thanks for any insight. So, Yael, what do you what do you think? What stands out to you? Yeah, well, it's such a great question. It's such a big question. Um, I <laughs> specialize in couples therapy, so I do see this a lot in in the couples therapy room. And I see it in counseling when people are deciding whether or not to have a baby. And then I see it when people have had a baby and they're running into conflict because their visions for how each of them saw raising a child are so different. And, you know, there are some, so in terms of like the, this question of, are there potential deal breakers? I think that there are some deal breakers. You know, there are some things that you cannot compromise. You can either have a child or you cannot have a child and you can't really compromise it. And the other one that I think is really huge is that is hard to compromise on is like the where do you live? Because you can generally only live in one place, although there are certainly some peop- some couples who do these bi-coastal commutes, but they're really complicated, especially if you're raising a family. So 
In many situations, you can compromise, but there are a few things that need to be decided. And, you know, maybe we'll just stick with this. Do you have a baby or not? Question. That is, you know, one that I think is important to discuss before you make any kind of a long-term commitment is, you know, how you see family life looking for the long-term of a committed relationship and what you each prefer and to recognize that you might want different things. So that's important to discuss. Mm-hmm. I actually think values are a great way to approach a conversation that has a lot of nuance. So what is it that you want to stand for as a parent and to talk about it in all the different realms of parenting in terms of, for example, discipline and shows of affection in terms of kinds of activities or how much you want to travel in terms of the importance that you're going to place on academics versus downtime in terms of who's going to take care of the doctor appointments and who's going to be the one who does the chauffeuring in terms of who might, you know, how you're going to organize around domestic responsibilities of like making dinners or, um, you know, doing summer camp planning. These are the kinds of things that are really helpful to have at least a sense of. And I think psychological flexibility is so important because what you plan for might turn out differently because there's always a lot of unanticipated twists and turns in everybody's life and you don't exactly know what your kid is going to want or not want or how they'll be or what your professional lives are going to, what course your professional lives are going to take. But really getting curious together about what you want to stand for as parents, as co-parents, and as partners. Another area of value that I think is important to discuss before having kids is how you want to take care of your marriage. Because once children arrive, it they take up a lot of the energy that used to be pretty easy to send to a relationship. So how do you want to continue to take care of your marriage when there is less free resources to direct to it, I think is also a really important thing to talk about. So it's sort of helpful to identify specific goals and then get clear on values more generally that can help guide you through the journey of parenting. Mm. You've given a really good list that really does answer the question. Like what, what are the questions beyond when and how many? And you just have painted, you know, painted a really solid picture of what those questions might look like. I love the idea of talking together. I could just picture this couple, Chantal and her potential partner talking together about like, who are your parenting role models? Like, you know, kind of talking about like, who, who do you love their parenting style and approach and why? Like, what do you love about that? What do you see about yourself or me in, in that model? I love the idea, of course, about talking about, you know, family of origin, the family systems that we grew up in. I love a conversation that's like, what did you love about how your parents navigated parenthood and what did you struggle with? So looking at kind of their, like their model, you know, their, their model, their approach, what do you admire about it? What do you want to transform from it? These are all really good starting points. It was, this question was making me think about my dissertation research back, you know, many, many years ago at this point where I was studying how couples make the transition to marriage and it was, they were qualitative interviews I did with, you know, whatever, 20 or 25 heterosexual couples that were relatively newly married. But then I also had them complete a survey 
And on the survey, I asked them, like, if and when you have children, what will be your model for, you know, working versus at home? And less than half of the couples had matched models, right? So they, one had imagined, you know, very often it was one was imagining one partner home full-time and one partner working full-time, while the other one was imagining both people working. And so that, what you're saying also about how will the two of you as a system manage these dual tensions of needing to have income brought into the home and needing to have income, you know, turned into the things that families need, the goods and services that families need. And so that conversation is so much a part of creating a parenting vision as well. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's so interesting that you did those qualitative interviews and found a lot of mismatch in what people expected. And that, that doesn't surprise me. And that's, and I don't even think that that's necessarily a problem, but it's such a useful thing to share and to figure out, hmm, how do we want to approach that given that we have different visions and where's the overlap and where's the wiggle room for each of us in terms of what we're willing to to consider. And then again, just recognizing that once kids actually show up that and, and once your job evolves over time, that your original vision might be an evolving process too. That's right. That quote about uh, if you want to make God laugh, you know, tell her your plans. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And your kids, Chantal, your kids are going to teach you how to, you know, how to parent them. Right. So you may feel like you're going to be, you know, whatever, a really permissive parent. And then you, the universe sends you this child that needs much more structure, much more direction. Right. Or vice versa. So I think that there's there's this idea. I love conversation and I love what you had said about psychological flexibility of just working, really nourishing your relationship with each other so that then when you do need to pivot or adapt, you're A, not starting from opposite ends of the spectrum, and B, you're both aligned on a value of flexibility, reimagining, you know, tweaking as you go. Yeah. That's why the, your podcast title is so beautiful because this opportunity to reimagine the love and to do that is kind of a, a regular process. Like, okay, well, how about now in this new phase, I think is a really, it's a good mantra. Like, let's reimagine it now. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. I have loved spending this time with you. And I know that for anybody who's listening to this conversation and is new to your work, they're going to be excited to, to dive in and learn more about you. So where can people go? What's the, what's the next best move they can make to understand more about you and the work that you do? Well, you can pick up my book, Work, Parent, Thrive, anywhere that books are sold. And you can also find me. I co-host a podcast of my own called Psychologists Off the Clock, where we talk about various topics in psychology, some about working parenthood, but lots about other topics that are just uh, interesting topics related to well-being and flourishing and work, parenting, health, and relationships. So Psychologists Off the Clock, and that website is offtheclockpsych.com. Wonderful. We will put all the links in the show notes to your book, which is available wherever books are sold and to your podcast so people can can benefit more from all of your wisdom and amazing perspective. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Yael, for joining me here on the show to explore these crucial conversations about parenting, family life, and balancing our careers and our personal lives. There are certainly no easy answers when it comes to raising a family and being a parent, but I love Yael's values-based approach. And if her framework spoke to you, I highly recommend you check out her book, Work, Parent, Thrive, 
12 science-backed strategies to ditch guilt, manage overwhelm, and grow connection. And you can find that linked in the show notes. Thank you also to our listener in Vancouver for the wonderful question. Until next time, be well. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Katie Pagich of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love. 